there, this is Jen Wade, part of the core team here at Springs Church. We just want to say thank you so much for joining us and listening to our podcast. We are praying that it encourages you and it inspires you. And if you'd like to find out more about Springs Church, please visit our website, springschurch.co.uk. Here's today's message. So we're approaching the end of the summer holidays. Some of you have got parents who are parents of your children. Potentially very glad about that fact. Others of you may not. Those of you that haven't got kids have just loved the, the traffic-free roads in rush hour. It's soon to be over. I'm sorry. A week, in, a week on Wednesday, I'll go back. Um, so, yeah, I don't know what your experience of the summer holidays have been. Um, but uh, I've been able to spend some extra time with my children. They're uh, nine and five, Thomas and Daniel, and they're both at school now. So they've had six weeks off. They're very excited about that fact. And I've actually got to know them a little bit better during the holidays, as you do, spending extra time with people. Um, I want to say there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> but um, you parents of young children know what I mean. Um, but one thing I've learned, in addition to them being very uh, kind and sweet and funny and loving, they're both incredibly, incredibly impatient. I have the two most impatient children on earth. Now, as I share this, Parents of young babies who haven't got to this phase yet, just you wait. Just you wait. Those of you that have got children this age or even older will know exactly what I mean. So you can say a very loud amen to the things I'm about to share. So I don't feel like it's just mine. Please help me with some empathy here. Uh, what I've learned is they don't like to wait for anything, particularly food. And I have two boys. So when they are hungry, they are hungry. And I don't get any warning of the hunger. I should just apparently know that they're hungry. I'm learning when they become grottier, they're getting hungrier generally. So I'm trying to learn from their cues, but on the whole, when they want food, they want it right now. Uh, and I have to tell them, you know, I, I don't, it's not microwave meals in our house. Sometimes it is, but most of the time they're not microwave meals. I've got time to give me time to prepare them, but they know they want it right now. Um, they want to know what's planned three weeks from now, right now. I mean, on holiday, we were in Wales uh, the week before last, and we were midway through one activity, and they were already asking me, what's next? And I have to fight the urge to not sound like my dad and tell them, ooh, when I was a kid, we had to make our own fun. Um, Thomas is currently working his way through his birthday money by ordering stuff from Amazon. <laughs> uh, he just got loads of birthday money from his friends because none of them know what to buy him, I think. He just got like a wad of cash. So the kids minted. Uh, Daniel's very cheesed off because he doesn't understand why Tom's birthday is still lasting. <laughs> Why four months after his birthday, he's still having presents delivered. He's not a happy bunny. But Tom's working his way through this money. And uh, they are the Amazon Prime generation. Sometimes you have to order stuff on Amazon and it doesn't come the same day. Did you know that? Honestly, it'll arrive in three to five working days. It's like a profanity to Thomas. He's actually offended by the idea that he has to wait for stuff. Um, and on holiday, it's not just with like with stuff to buy. On holiday, the TV was a terrestrial TV. I had to explain to them what terrestrial meant. Um, Daniel was mortified. He kept asking why I can't fast forward through the ads. I was like, because it's just Freeview. What's Freeview? Where's Netflix? Where's Disney Plus? I haven't got them, Daniel. I'm so sorry for not ordering a, a Hilton Hotel five-star resort. We're in Wales. But anyway, They've got no idea. When I was a kid, I keep telling them this, there was an hour of children's TV programs on after school and that was it. And you had to watch what you had to watch, even if it was naff. Bring back the ragged dolls, by the way, I say, but that's a different conversation. But look, before I criticize my children too much about their impatience, I've had to take a long, hard look in the mirror and realize 
I am absolutely no better than they are. That's the bottom line. Uh, we are all becoming victims of this culture. We are the on-demand generation. The stream the next episode right now generation. Uh, I'm still annoyed that I've got to wait for the Crown Series 5. Come on, Netflix. It's been months. Pull your fingers out, COVID or not. We are the Alexa, give me the headlines now generation. The buy now, pay later generation. Do you ever go to the drive-thru and see two cars ahead of you and think, oh, gosh. Oh, two cars. Yes, you do, Sarah. I know you do. You know the feeling. Or oh, the worst part is when you get to the window and the chips aren't ready and they ask you to go and park in the waiting bay so that they can then bring their f the food to the window. How dare they? How actually, how dare they make me wait five minutes and then come out in the pouring rain and hand me my food while I sit in my car watching the Crown Series 4 on Netflix. Um, how dare they? They're all very first world problems, I realise it, but we are the generation that want it all. Now, we don't like to wait for stuff. And as in life, so in faith, so often, I think it's inevitable that we bring that approach to life to our approach to faith. We don't like waiting for God to do stuff either. And so the title of today's message is playing the waiting game, which doesn't actually feel like a game at all a lot of the time. Because some of us have been waiting for God to do stuff for ages. Maybe you've been praying for a loved one for a long, long time and he doesn't seem to be answering it. Um, and some of these prayers are, are very selfless prayers. They're not kind of God give me a supermodel and a mansion type prayers because you, you might be waiting a long time, by the way, for that one. Um, some of the prayers are, are like, they're, they're good prayers healing for someone or, or praying for a new job. You've been praying for a new job for absolutely ages and no matter what doors you push, they just seem to stay closed and God doesn't seem to be providing a way out. Some of you have been praying for a spouse. Your entire adult life, God, give me, bring me a husband, bring me a wife, help me meet someone. And it just hasn't happened and God just doesn't seem to have provided, hasn't answered in that area. I could admit to know what that feels like when God doesn't seem to be answering the things that I want him to do. So I want to share a real life story with you today that helped to inspire this message. Um, and it's all about our five-year-old Daniel, as he often appears in sermons. I, I say this, I love him. If he was the first, he would have been the last. Um, he's lovely, but he's a, he's a little character. And Daniel, um, and you know, I've shared part of this story before, but not the ending of it. Forgive me if you've heard the beginning bit. Daniel um, went through a, a long, long period of several years where he was very fussy with his food. Anyone else had any fussy eaters? Their kids who've grown up, were they picky when they were kids? Yes. Get in there, Elijah. I know it. Oh, I've got books for you two to read. Um, yeah, when he was about two and a half, he went from eating quite well to recurring pickier and pickier, as they often do, children. And uh, he was, would basically just emotionally react to anything we put on his plate, like it was the worst thing ever. And we were in the wagon and horses when he was two and a half, and um, we were, I think he, he was served chicken dippers and potato waffles. How dare I? And he wouldn't eat it, just crying and refusing and kicking off. And on the next table, there was another family. I, you could see their halos. Um, the children, there were no iPads to entertain their kids. That was the other thing. Put the TV on, he might eat. <laughs> No, none of that. They were there. They were, t they were talking to each other while they ate. <laughs> I mean, what's that? Um, they were talking to each other. And they had a little girl about Dan's age at the time, about two and a half, three. And she was, I don't know, hoovering up chicken tikka masala, covered in gravy and peas. I don't know what, the, what they, they gave her. She was, ooh, mm. 
shoving it down her mouth. And I remember watching her, partly hating the family, I'll be honest. Then looking at Daniel and trying not to hate him, I didn't. Um, but, but whispering this prayer of God, and you may have prayed this yourself, why can't my kid be like that? God, why can't my son just do that? And God whispered back to me in my spirit, I'll get him there. That was three years ago. Now, that journey has been a very, very slow one. There have been lots of occasions where it has felt like that prayer has not been answered. Daniel's making no progress at all when it comes to food. Uh, if anything, sometimes it felt like he was making even less progress by dropping foods that previously were not you know, the worst things ever. And it felt like God wasn't doing anything, and he certainly wasn't getting him there, uh, or certainly not as quickly as I'd hoped. Now, Dan has got better. His food didn't take his way better. It's more varied. He doesn't react emotionally that much around food anymore. He has definitely, definitely become better. But the progress has been so gradual, it's been quite hard to miss. And then a few weeks ago, this is the part of the story that you won't have heard, we were, uh, we'd been to Sue's and we were going, um, after Sue's house, we were going strawberry picking. And we realized we hadn't got any lunch. So we were going to stop in Tesco Express and buy them a cheese sandwich. The fact that Daniel would even eat a cheese sandwich is a miracle because it used to be that the cheese and the butter couldn't touch. The bread would be there, the cheese would be there, and don't let them meet. Uh, he'd eat the bread and then the cheese would don't ever put them together. That was the worst thing ever, and he'd throw it at me. So cheese sandwiches, gradually that was a big breakthrough. So he'd eat a cheese sandwich now. So we'll go to Tesco, we'll get a plain cheese sandwich. Thomas can eat ham, Thomas lots of fussy, no worries. Got to Tesco, they only had cheese and, and onion and mayonnaise. Come on, Tesco, pull your finger out. Bog, bog standard cheese sandwich. They've got none. So we're thinking, oh no. When they get hungry, they get vile. What are you going to do? <laughs> and the panic starts to step in. So we decided to make a concoction. We bought some white bread, which we never have. That was the idea. They might eat that. Warburton's toasty white bread, the orange one. Uh, a block of butter. Um, some pre-packed sliced cheese. And I, I took, I don't think it's stealing because it was right by the other stuff. But I took one of those. If you're stealing, I'm sorry, I'm confessing to you. I stole um, a wooden fork from the sushi bits, you know. And then in the back, we paid for it all. I mean, I didn't just walk out with it. Uh, in the back of the car on the forecourt at Tesco Express Garage in Kingsbeamford, I made them cheese sandwiches with a wooden fork as the knife. I hacked the butter into the bread, as you would. Uh, put the cheese on. I had no knife, so I just put the other piece of bread on top and, <laughs> and handed it to them. And Daniel went, oh, that's nice. And he inhaled this thing. So I sat in the front seat while I'm eating my, you know, doorstep sandwich, watching this kid inhale this cheese sandwich. And clear as a crystal, God said, I told you I'll get him there. And all of a sudden I realized, crikey, you really have bought him so far. Now, for a lot of you, you're thinking white bread cheese sandwich is hardly the, the height of gourmet. But for Daniel, that was massive. And God, it was a real reminder that God actually has answered that prayer, albeit very, very slowly and far slower than I would have liked him to. Um, but I'll be honest, I wish God had just changed Daniel there and then when I prayed that prayer in the wagon and horses. I wish he'd woke up the next morning and enjoyed milk on his cereal because that's something else he doesn't have either. Dry Weetabix, anybody? Yes, please, if you're my son. But I don't like waiting for an answer. I wanted God to just go, done. I don't like playing the waiting game. And it frustrates me when God does not answer promptly. Um, it's really frustrating asking a question of someone and then getting no response. And some of you are like this. You can identify with this. You've been praying and asking for stuff way more serious than will Daniel eat a cheese sandwich. You've been seeking God for so long that you started to wonder whether God is even listening to the prayers you're praying. 
whether he even cares or whether he's even there at all. And it makes us ask the inevitable question. What is God doing whilst we're waiting for him to answer? What's he doing in the space between the prayer and the provision? So we're going to explore in the scripture today to see that even though God might be silent, he's never absent. And while he may not be answering, he is always working. And we're going to explore um, what we can do whilst we play in that waiting game, in that space between the prayer and the answer to come. So first of all, what's God doing whilst we're waiting for him to answer? Well, first of all, God can tell the time. Just, just to remind you, he can. He's very good at time. He invented time. He created it. He can tell the time. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says this. It says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. God's not slow in keeping his promises. At just the right time, he answers. And in Romans 5 verse 6, it says, it says you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So God's not bad with his time telling his timing is always right. It's just that often his timing is different to ours. And because we're human and we think we're always right, we think that when he doesn't answer, he's the one that's being late. <laughs> when God's timing differs, we think that he's the one that's got it wrong, not us. Now, in hindsight, I think we often understand more of God's perfect timing when you look back. And you can see, oh, I can see, I, I get it now. I get why God did or didn't answer. And this is because whenever we're waiting, our God is always working. And there's a wonderful example of this in biblical history that I want to go through today that makes me sound so clever and I can't claim any credit because I just stole it from Craig Rochelle. And he does a way better job of me of explaining this part of biblical history. So if you want to Google it, you can and you'll hear his wonderful theological exposition of the 400 years between the book of Malachi at the end of the Old Testament and the book of Matthew at the start of the New. But unfortunately, Craig Rochelle is in Oklahoma, so he's stuck with my version. But it's all credit to big Craig, big enough, good old Craig Rochelle. So this period of time between the very last book in the Old Testament, which was called Malachi, and the first book in the New Testament, which is called Matthew, there was a year, a 400-year period. It's called the intertestamental period. Oh, you're going to sound so smart when you leave church today. Yes, I've just been learning about the intertestamental period of time. So I'm going to teach you all about it. Good old Craig taught me, and I'm going to pass on the wealth. Um, the Old Testament, it tells the history of the Jewish people waiting for a Messiah. Obviously, there's lots of other stories in there, but the overarching arc, the narrative arc of the Old Testament is that it's full of promises of the, uh, the Jewish people being wait, waiting for God to send a Messiah, someone that will save the Jewish people from their enemies. And the Jewish people had different ideas of what this Messiah would look like. Some thought he'd be this kind of political warrior. Some thought he'd be this amazing soldier. None of them, I don't think, realized he'd be Jesus as he came, which is why most of them didn't recognize him when he first came. But either way, they were promised a Messiah and they're waiting and waiting and waiting throughout the Old Testament. And from the start of Genesis, all the way through the Torah, the major, the minor prophets, the whole of the Psalms, there was constant prophecies, promises, messengers that God sent saying, I'm going to send him. He's going to come. The Messiah's coming. And they keep waiting and keep waiting. And then God sends another messenger and they write down what God says. I'm going to send him. He's going to come. This is what he's going to be like on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. And the Jewish people continue to wait and wait and wait and pray and ask God to send him and wait and wait and wait and ask God to send him and more messengers come but no Messiah. So they keep waiting and waiting and waiting and God says, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And then the final book in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi. And God makes these promises again amongst others. 
And then nothing. 400 years of radio silence. No more prophecies, no more messengers, nothing worthy of being written down that we know of. Just absolute silence. So had God changed his mind? Had he decided that the Jewish people were no longer worthy of a saviour? Did he not love them enough anymore? Had they just got on his nerves to the point where he thought, forget it, I wash my hands of you? Why was he silent? What was he doing? Have you ever asked those questions of God yourself? Why aren't you saying something? Speak up, come on, I'm waiting. What have I got to do to make you answer me? What is God doing while you wait for your promise? What was God doing while the Jewish people waited for theirs? Well, actually, it turned out God was doing a lot during that 400-year period, in that intertestamental period. And like I said, looking back, you can, we can look back now and see why God waited. In hindsight, we see the why behind the wait. So during this period of time, here's what was happening in the world at large, okay? This is the history lesson to float Pete's boat when he washes this back later on. Five ways that Craig Rochelle points out God was working while his people were waiting. First of all, number one, Alexander the Great. So during this period of time, this 400 years, uh, in 12 years of it, Alexander the Great conquered the whole world. That's why they called him the Great. Daniel's invented his own nickname, by the way. He told the lady on holiday that his name was Daniel the Awesome and insisted that she call it him. And she did. So more for her. But yeah, Daniel the Awesome. Um, but Alexander the Great, he had this nickname, the Great, because he really was great. Like He conquered the whole known world at the time. And um, as a result, almost everyone in those days spoke a little Greek because that was the language that he made them speak. So all of a sudden, there was this kind of common language that lots and lots of people spoke and understood. Number two, as a result of that, the second thing that happened during this intertestamental period is that the Old Testament, those um, scriptures with all the full of the promises of the, of the Messiah, they were translated also into Greek. So for the first time, that was the language everyone could, spoke, uh, could speak, and for the first time, everyone could read about the coming of the Messiah in a language they understood. Number three, Socratic teaching. Gosh, I wish I'd written this. Uh, for the first time in history in this period, people began learning differently. Previous to this time, people would learn by being spoken at, and they'd just listen. I, I know it all. You don't. I'll teach it. You listen to it. But what happened during this period is Socrates, if you've ever heard of him, his mate Plato and all of the other, Aristotle, these Greek um, philosophers, they created this um, method of learning and teaching called Socratic teaching and it involved people not just listening but asking questions about what they were listening to we still teach that way today that's how uh, modern teaching methods are we based on this idea that you don't just learn by listening you learn by asking exploring debating thinking about it so for the first time again in history people were not just reading about a bible in a different language they're reading it in their own language that they understood and they were allowed to ask questions about it who is this man who is this guy that Jesus that has come. They could ask questions about him. Number four, Roman roads. Alexander the Great, great died. He wasn't that great. And uh, he was long dead and no longer great. And so the Romans came and they took over. And there was a massive period of peace, unprecedented peace, because the Romans were too scary and no one could beat them. And so while it was all peaceful and they weren't fighting wars, the Romans built roads, loads of them. As a result, previously cut off places were now really easy to join up. You could go places quicker because they built a road system. Many of them still exist today. And finally, if I say it right, I'll be so pleased. The 
dias- diaspora. Yes, thank you. I'm not, Pete's not here. He's in my history buff. The diaspora, the scattering of the Jews across the world. During this period, there was a really weird season for Jewish people who lived in Jerusalem because if they didn't like the Romans and what they were doing, they weren't allowed to live there because the Romans were like, agree with us or yuck. So the Jewish people fled Jerusalem. They scattered the diaspora. They scattered all over the known world. Now, when you add all these things together, you begin to see the why behind the 400-year wait. Because for the first time in those 400 years, when everyone was wondering where God was and what he was doing, suddenly, for the first time, people could read the Bible in a language they understood. For the first time, they were not only encouraged, but allowed, but encouraged to ask questions about the Messiah they were waiting for. For the first time in history, the good news of the Savior could travel through a common language on roads that were easy to pass through, through a Jewish people that had been scattered all over the world that knew the promises. In other words, while God's people were waiting, God was really working to get it to the point where it was the absolute perfect time to send his Messiah. God wasn't silent or absent. He was working. The same is true for us. While you are waiting, whatever promise it is that you're asking of God, whatever you're expecting him to do, whatever you're believing for, while you are waiting and while you are praying, while you are asking him to answer, God is still working. Some of you need to hear that today. Whatever you're asking him for, he's not absent. He's not inactive. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not working. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. It really was the perfect timing because God's timing is completely trustworthy. He's good all the time. And that leads us on to our next point. If this is true and God is good all the time, the key for us while we're waiting, while we're playing that waiting game, is to fix our eyes on the provider, not the provision. I think we often get disheartened by God's silence and by his timing because we've fixed our focus, and it's so easy to do. We've fixed our focus on the answer and not him. We so focus on what we need him to do for us that we fixate on the solution to the problem and not the problem solver. And this approach to God, I think, is one of the greatest misinterpretations of the gospel in our age. We may read the scripture through this kind of Amazon Prime cultural lens. It's led us to kind of perpetuate this weird prosperity gospel that puts my happiness and my satisfaction and and what I need at the very center of what the gospel is about. And that's not God's primary purpose for our lives. God's primary purpose for your life is not necessarily to make you happy. I'm really sorry if that confuses you or baffles you, but there's nothing in the Bible that says his job is to make you happy. God's primary purpose for our lives is not for him to do what we want him to do. So what is it then? What, do God does want, what does God want us to do? Well, Colossians 1.16 says this, and I think he sums it up perfectly. All things were created, that's you, all things were created by him, for him. God's primary concern for your life is that you are intimately connected to him. They're in a great time now. I love that. Absolutely love that sound. That's got to be a good thing, right? I really don't mind. You can leave the door open. I like the noise of it. 
God's primary concern is that we are intimately connected in relationship with him because that relationship brings far more contentment than the fleeting happiness of an answered prayer ever can. And I know that's easy for me to say because I don't know what you're praying for. And you might think that the answer to the prayer will bring all the answers that you need and solve all the problems. And I realize it could be a big thing, but it still won't satisfy like he can. That's what we were created for, to enjoy God, to walk in relationship with him and become like him. And yet we approach God so often like his role in our lives is to make things better, to make us happier, wealthier, more content. And when we ask for those things and they don't materialize, we think that God's somehow not keeping his side of the bargain. That approach to God is so cultural. It's rooted in how we raise, in the media that we consume, even the things we're taught at school. And Jesus came and he continues to teach something so countercultural to that. He asks us not to indulge ourselves, but to deny ourselves. He tells us the route to life is a narrow path, a tricky one to walk. He even describes it as hard. How many of us want a hard life? Come to church, we'll give you a great hard life. Like we should put that on all the flyers. Come to church, your life will be so much harder. You won't get anything you want. When we come to God and we ask for him for help and it doesn't come the way we hoped or in the time that we hope, we think, oh, this is too much and we give up. We back off and we drop out because we're missing, we misinformed about what God does and who he is because the beauty and contentment and the character building exhilaration of the abundant life we promise in Jesus is not found in the destination or the answer or the husband or the wife or the mansion or the car or the job. It's not going to satisfy you. It's just not. They're good. But it's not going to satisfy you. The beauty of knowing Jesus is found in the, in the journey, not the destination, on the narrow path, in the following, in the denying of ourselves, in the waiting. You might think, Lindsay, that's utter tripe. What are you talking about? How can you find beauty in hope waiting for God to do something? Well, I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 41, verse 31. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Anyone ever done a parachute jump or hang glided or parascended? Come on, where's the daredevils in Gorno? Well, it's my, it's my dream to do a parachute jump as long as I could guarantee that someone would push me out because that's the only way I'd ever jump out of it. But I've heard from people that I know have done it that it's the most amazing feeling, the feeling of like you're flying that you're soaring is the most exhilarating feeling in the world. And that's what we promise when we wait. Not in the physical sense. I'm not saying God pushes you out of a plane and <laughs> good luck. But in the spiritual sense, they will soar on wings like eagles. As in the physical, so in the spiritual. To soar in the presence of God is a feeling like no other. And you know that. Lots of you know that. You felt it. It's an experience that we promised. Not when we receive an answer but while we're waiting for it. That's a paradigm shift, isn't it? That changes your whole approach to the whole system of praying. Because all of a sudden, you're not waiting for the end result. You're enjoying the process. Because in the process, in the waiting, is the exhilaration. And in a way, then the waiting becomes more satisfying than the answer, the answer itself. We know him more in the waiting. We experience intimacy with him like no other when we're waiting in his presence. When we're drawing close to him and finding our true needs met. When we're fixing our eyes not on the answers or the provision, 
but when we fix our eyes on him because that's what we were designed for and that's what really gives us satisfaction. And I know what I'm saying today is true because I've lived it out and I know I could go in the room and ask many, many people here who've got their own stories of proving that this is the case, of knowing that when you're waiting for something, the intimacy with God is so much deeper than you would ever think. Because I've prayed prayers that I was desperate for God to answer, just like you have. Prayers that I thought would solve everything. God change him. God make him want me and not her. God make him stay. Months of prayer. Months of seeking and crying out to God. Please, God, don't let me end up alone. And through it all, God knew that man had no intention of staying with me. And eventually he left. And he chose her. And between the prayers and the answer, I hand on heart can tell you I have never been more intimately connected with God than I was in that season. That season of waiting, when all I really knew what to do was to pray, created an intimacy with Jesus that was, I hate to say it, it almost made it worth it. I sound a little bit masochistic. I don't mean it to sound that way. But it's proof that even in the toughest of seasons, the beauty and the intimacy that we can have when we don't fix our eyes on what God's going God's to sort out, but just on him, is amazing. He may not have answered the way that I wanted him to. That doesn't mean that God wasn't working all things together for good. And you know the end of the story, because you know him. It wasn't Matt, by the way. I say for the record. He didn't like go and then come back, although, you know, bless you if that's happened to you. It's okay to ask those questions of God. What are you doing? Why are you making me wait? Why aren't you answering? Are you even there at all? Do you even care? He's a good God. You're not bothered by those questions. Honestly, he'd much rather you ask them than mumble them while you walk away. <laughs> the key is to allow those questions to lead you into intimacy with him, not cause you to stop believing. So whether we get an answer or not, whether we get an answer now or whether we get one in eternity, we can hold on to the hope and the truth of this beautiful, beautiful verse in Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. God works all things together for our good, even when he seems silent, because every challenge, every illness, every betrayal, every bank statement, every lonely night, every unanswered question is used by God to draw us closer to him, to develop character in us, to transform us more into his likeness. And if we turn our questions towards him and not away from him, he uses that time, that waiting to meet with us, to satisfy us, to change us and to perfect us. And that's what our ultimate purpose is. That's what satisfies way more than the things that we think are going to make us happy. That's what we were created for. So finally, bringing it into land. Okay, we're good. What should we do whilst we're waiting for him to answer? It's all very well. It's been quite a philosophical message. I realize it has been. And it wouldn't be a Lindsay message without a bit of practical application to take away. So here it comes. How do you keep your eyes fixed on him? Between the promise and the provision. Between the promise of a homeland and the wilderness. Between Malachi and Matthew. What do you do in that period of time? Well, let's ground it, shall we? What can you do in the waiting? First of all, number one, keep pressing in. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, 
shortest verse in the Bible. Pray continuously. I think it's short so that remember it because it's the most important thing, I think. Keep pressing in. Pray continuously. Make an effort every single day to carve out solitary time to spend with Jesus, but also pray on the go all the time. Every time you have a doubt, every time you have a question, turn it over to the Lord. When a fear enters your mind, you fling it back to God. It's constant conversation with the Creator. Number two, continue meeting with others. The temptation when things aren't being answered or things aren't going right is to not want to be around other people that seem to have all their answers and have everything right and have it all together. They can be the most irritating, I get it. But we need to spur each other on. You can't do it alone. We need to meet with others, to be honest with other people. I know I say this probably every time I preach because it's true. <laughs> we need to encourage each other and be honest with each other. Hebrews 10:24. let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Number three, look for character change in yourself. There is growth in the waiting game. More things grow in a valley than they ever do on a mountain top. Did you know that? It's true. Mountain tops are lovely. There's a lovely view from them, but they are barren, barren places. All the growth is in a valley. And if that metaphor can be applied to our lives, the same is true. It's wonderful having mountaintop experiences, but they don't make you grow and they don't really change you. The growth in our character happens often in the more difficult seasons, in the waiting. And when you know that your character is changing through that waiting, that can be incredibly encouraging to, to you as an individual, knowing that in this time, God is still doing something and what he's doing is changing me. And if you can't see your character changing, because often we, we're our own worst critic, we, we can't see, I don't think, ourselves accurately. You need other people to point it out. Mothers are very good at that, I find. Um, but so are good trusted friends. So ask other people that you trust. Are my reactions changing? Is my character changing? Do I seem softer to you? If you can't see, ask them. Because if you do the two previous things, if you do pray continuously and you do continue to meet with people, I promise you, you will be changing when the Holy Spirit lives in us, he changes us. It's impossible for him not to. It's what he does. He makes fruit grow. And if you can't see, ask someone else to show you, where's the fruit in my character? Because that's so encouraging and it helps you while you're waiting. And finally, and the band, you guys can come back up now if you want to, wherever they are. Be prepared for a different answer to the one you expected. I can, I, I can prove that's true. <laughs> The answer I got was not the one I expected. It wasn't the prayer that I even prayed, I'll be honest. Because sometimes God's answer is quite simply, no. What you're asking for isn't going to be good for you. When Daniel asked me to have Frutella sweets for breakfast, guess what I tell him? No, I do tell him no. Sometimes there are days when he doesn't eat and you're like, yes, it's calories. No, it's always a no. No, Daniel, you can't have Frutella for breakfast. It's not good for you. So it is with God. Some of the things you're asking for are just not going to be good for you. The answer is no. He's a good father. He knows how to give good gifts to his children and also how to stop us from receiving bad ones. Sometimes the things we're asking for just won't actually draw us any closer to him. Remember, that's his purpose for us, to be closer to him. So if the things we're asking for won't do that, he won't give it to you. We can also be prepared for the question to change over time. That's what he does. 
He helps us to see things differently, to realise in hindsight, maybe the things I've been asking for aren't the things that I really need. So be prepared for the question to change too. God doesn't always answer the way we want or expect, but he always answers correctly and he always answers on time. Sometimes that, the answer just doesn't come this side of eternity. And I don't know why that is. I wish I did, but I'm not God. Thank goodness, none of us are. Some things are just fathomless. And I know that's a real cop-out, but it's true. But we can take consolation in the fact that one day we'll understand. God will explain it all. And again, in the light of eternity, what we're asking for will seem absolutely pointless by comparison. Remember, just because he doesn't answer how or when we expect or think he should doesn't mean he's not listening and it doesn't mean he's not working. The presence of God is accessible even in the wilderness, even on the bridge between the question and the answer. So take heart from that today. And as we sing together now, let's just press into his presence. I don't know what you're asking him for. You might have even asked so many times you don't even want to bother asking anymore. It seems like a waste of time. It's okay to ask, we're told to ask, to keep asking, to keep knocking, to keep seeking. But let's remember today that the main focus, the main purpose we're here for, is not to focus on what we need, it's to focus on him. And as we do that, as we press into his presence, the things we're asking for really quickly become less and less as he becomes greater. And there's nothing more satisfying than that. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're just going to worship Let's press into his presence together, shall we? And meet with him. Jesus, I thank you so much that your timing is impeccable, that you are always good. You are always, always good to us. And I just pray for my friends here today, Lord, for those that are praying things and feel like you're not answering, who are frustrated by your timing, frustrated by your lack, lack of interest and silence. Lord, I pray you help them to see the truth, and that you are working and that you love them and that you can be trusted. Lord, we lift our eyes from the things that we need you to do and help us to fix them on the one that can do them. And as you do that, Lord, I pray that you just open our eyes to the just the breadth and length and height and depth of your beauty. We pray, Lord, that you would just help us to soar in your presence today as we wait on you. Let us experience that together, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. To hear more of our messages, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and our podcast channel for past preachers. If you feel like you got something out of today's message, why not share it with your friends and spread the good news of Jesus? We are praying for you. We love you. So please, if you need anything at all, check out springschurch.co.uk. God bless.